So Jay, have you ever noticed that the X-Men go on, like, a lot of road trips? There's X-Force, the Time Displaced 05, Iceman and Rogue, Iceman and Beast in the First Class comics. Miles, that's because road trips are awesome. You get away from your everyday life, crash the Republican National Convention, pick up a disenchanted housewife hitchhiking in suburbia. Is your name Mike Doonesbury in this entirely theoretical scenario? I mean, it could also be Mark Slackmeyer. But seriously, going back to your question, road trips make great transitional arcs for superheroes. I can see where they'd want to get away from supervillain attacks for a few thousand miles. You mean, aside from highway-based supervillains? There are highway-based supervillains? Sure there are. There's, you know, the highwaymen, for starts, and get Midnight, and of course Baron Von Blimp. Uh, that's the guy who wants to replace trucks with Zeppelins so that he can achieve, and I quote, financial victory through air power. That is amazing. So, do they fight highway-based superheroes? Not so much. Because road trips are usually transition arcs. Because both the trucker superheroes move to outer space. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 413 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the open road, or I guess the open desert in this case. We are finally at X-Force number 75, the famous Burning Man episode. Weirdly, as we record this, I'm like a week away from leaving for a road trip. Oh nice, so it's thematically appropriate, so you know what to expect. You know, evil wizards, ancient staves, conjunctions of different realms on the world tree. Yeah, so the usual. The usual. But, as far as how we got here, this is a very different, very new era of X-Force, but the past is also important because the past informs the present. So maybe we should talk about, you know, what happened before Burning Man. Alright, so X-Force is the second generation of mutants from the Xavier School, or the third, depending on how you count. They started out, or many of them started out, as the Teenage New Mutants. After being mentored by Professor X, Magneto, X-Factor, and Cable over 100 issues, some of the New Mutants and some new teammates became X-Force, the most extreme teens of all. But not extreme, because Adam X the Extreme never actually joined the team. No, no, he just showed up briefly. After quite a few tragedies, the straw that broke the camel's back was their mentor Cable asking them to assume new fake identities and go even further underground to better fight their just but increasingly violent fight against, you know, the forces of injustice. And X-Force said, no, we are tired of this, we're gonna go be our real selves and just quit being superheroes for a while. So where'd they end up? Well, five of them went on the road, traveling the country without much of a goal in mind. Those were... Founding New Mutants, Mirage and Sunspot, each back on the team after some time as quasi-supervillains and, in Mirage's case, a Valkyrie. Late New Mutants edition Boom Boom, now with a new attitude, or tood as the case may be, and the new codename of Meltdown, although we keep calling her Boom Boom. We call her Meltdown sometimes. I feel like there are times when she's very Boom Boom and times when she's more Meltdown. Oh yeah, it's like being a Zelda or a Zoe, it's being a Meltdown or a Boom Boom. I don't know what that means. There's also a founding X-Force member who joined right before the team switched names, that being Warpath. Also a former Hellion, I believe. That's right. He just got done finding out who killed his entire family, dying himself, and getting briefly tormented by the ghost of that murderer, and coming back to life. I feel like it's important to note that the murderer in question was Strife. 
Oh yeah, yeah, Strife, who augmented his very spiky, bladey armor with additional skulls, which is more metal, to be fair. Okay, I guess it's more bone, technically. So I gotta tell you, when I was reading X-Force 75, I kept on getting really confused because there were all these callbacks to an arc I'd remembered reading but didn't remember covering, and it took me like a good ten minutes to realize that no, we hadn't skipped things, you and Al covered that, and I just sort of glossed over it in a new parent grad student sleep-deprived fugue state. That makes sense, and I'm not going to say that's an inappropriate way to deal with that bizarre, bizarre arc. Again, it was mostly that I was freaking out that we had we had accidentally skipped an arc and we'd forgotten to cover it, and it, it just seemed seemed like this this sort of... I mean, it, it was a very, like, oh shit, it's the day of the test, and I'm in high school again, and also I'm not wearing pants moment. Nope, Al and I got your back. I appreciate that. Lastly, there is early X-Force member Siren, successfully on the wagon from her alcoholism and slightly grumpy about her leadership not being respected after Mirage's return. Because Mirage, of course, was one of the leaders of the OG New Mutants, so a lot of the characters who were around back then kind of automatically fall back into those patterns and relationships. There are also a number of now-former members of X-Force who are going to show up in this arc. We've got mutant boyfriends Richter and Shatterstar, whom we last saw headed down to Mexico to sort out Richter's family's trouble with the law. Former team wine mom Domino, who's off honing her skills as a mercenary after an enemy implanted a device that screwed up her luck powers. And team leader Cable, who uh, seems to have taken the team's departure very well and is definitely giving them the space they asked for and not secretly shadowing them. Recently, Boom Boom wrote her long-distance X-Man boyfriend Cannonball a letter, asking him to meet up with her and the team at... Exploding Colossal Man, the Marvel Universe's version of actual gathering Burning Man. That brings us to X-Force number 75, Convergence. Written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Morales and company, colored by Marie Javins and Gloria Vasquez, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft's Colia Fuchs. And this cover. It's one of those, I don't know, I guess 1.5 gatefold covers, like one side folds out and the other doesn't. But the point is, it is a whole lot of art. And it really gets across just the chaos and the openness of this festival. We see Cannonball flying into the whole scene in his X-Men uniform in the big black sky, and below is this sea of dancing people in various states of undress and fetish gear and gender combinations, all dancing in their colored orange near the fires and gray away from them, and our team is in civilian clothes, dancing and talking in the crowd. They're like the only ones with color aside from the villainous Celine who's watching from the sidelines holding a corpse. And then there's the giant flaming exploding colossal man in the background of one side. It is so great, Jay. What's also great is the narration, as we see a bunch of cars and the dust trails they leave behind driving across the desert. A convocation that will bring together the fringes of late 20th century culture in raucous celebration. A festival that will unite a motley collection of geeks, deadheads and gearheads, techno-pagans, and tattooed prodigies. So... As you mentioned, Exploding Colossal Man is basically the Marvel Universe's version of Burning Man, and neither of us has been to Burning Man or, or knows that much about it, but luckily we have we have a source who is a longtime Burning Man aficionado and a comic book person who has definitely read this since he has read, in fact, all of the Marvel comics, who is here as our guest expert this episode. Thank you for joining us, Douglas Wolk. Good to be here. So, Douglas, here we have Exploding Colossal Man in the late 90s of Marvel Comics, You've been to Burning Man. How do they compare? How accurate is this to at least what Burning Man would have been like back then? It's remarkably similar. Like, it really, really captures the vibe of the thing. I started going in 1999. I've been every time that it has happened since because I'm hecka old. 
And this was published in uh, early 1998 or late 1997. So this would have been before there had been much in the way of media coverage of it. The first really big national coverage that there was of Burning Man was when Wired magazine did a piece about it in 1998, later this year. A little background maybe is useful on what exactly Burning Man is. It is an art and culture festival that has been happening the week leading up to Labor Day since 1986 or so. 1986 is really when it started as a three-hour thing on a beach in San Francisco. It eventually moved out to the Black Rock Desert in Nevada, a few, few hours' drive out of Reno, which is where it is now. It is on about seven square miles of completely flat, completely dead desert. The Playa, it's called. The Black Rock Desert. And that is roughly what this X-Force setting is. Of course, here it's uh, in Texas. And when a very similar festival called the Burning Tree Festival happens uh, sometime later in G. Willow Wilson's X-Men comics, it's somehow the Black Rock Desert is in Utah there. No, Nevada. But other than that, the vibe is remarkably accurate. So looking at what's going to happen in this issue. Has the Large Man of the actual Large Man Festival ever come to life and marauded through the festival? Well, that is a question that's sort of open to debate. I mean, consensus reality can get a little bit blurry at Burning Man. If someone were to come to me and say, you know, the man has just come to life and is marauding, do we have any mutants on hand who can stop it? I would probably say something along the lines of like, well, I completely believe that that is your perception of what's happening now. It's not really my perception of what's happening now, but you know, let's go with you and your perceptions and how you're feeling. And that's one of the things I love about Exploding Colossal Man happening in this era of X-Force. Like, these kids are exploring who they are, who they want to be, the world in which they live, the bizarre shit they've been through. And so being in a place where everybody's kind of doing that, albeit a little less super heroically, I don't know, it fits. Like, what do you think, Douglas? Was this Is this the book for the Marvel Universe to get its first glimpse of Burning Man in? Would it have fit somewhere else better? I think this is the perfect place for it. They are the right age, they're the right vibe, they are road tripping, they are figuring out themselves, they are opening up their personal identities, and boy howdy is Burning Man ever a place for that. So for... Listeners who are completely unfamiliar, who are hearing about this somehow for the first time, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what Burning Man and by extension Exploding Colossal Man is? So Burning Man as it is now, it is, as I say, it's an art and culture festival. It has certain rules. One of the rules is that it is participatory. What they say is no spectators. That doesn't mean you can't go and see the show, but it also means that, like, if you're going, you're expected to kind of be part of the show, to contribute to the experience that everybody else has. Another of the basic rules of the place that changes everything is that there is no commerce. You cannot buy or sell anything. You cannot display any logos. You can't advertise anything. That really, really changes a lot of the way that people interact because there's not that element of like, okay, how is this person trying to rip me off? Everything is just sort of on a gift economy basis. Here, have this. And that lets people more or less do things and interact in ways that they wouldn't get to otherwise. I love that. That does sound freaking amazing. I kind of wish we got to see more of that aspect of it in the comic, but I guess you only have so many pages. But something I've wondered about, I mean, we have the Exploding Colossal Man in the festival's name here. We have the Burning Man in the real festival's name here. Who is this gentle stranger with pecs like melons and knees of fringe? 
That is a fine question also. Larry Harvey is the name of the guy who came up with Burning Man in the first place back around 1986. He had just had some events or other in his life, and he decided, okay, I'm going to build a big sort of wooden man and burn it and invite my friends. And that's the thing. And it's become the ritual that is at the center of this event. The festival goes on for a week, and then Saturday night, the man burns. The man is, you know, can be 30 feet tall, can be 60 feet tall. The design varies from year to year. It's eventually evolved. So there's the man that burns on Saturday night, and then there is a temple, which is a vastly different design every year, that is a couple miles further out into the desert that burns on Sunday night, and that's a solemn occasion, and that's the end of the festival. But the center of it is like, yeah, we we burn the man. That's That's the thing that happens here. That's the thing that everything else is kind of organized around. A lot of the art that is made there is meant to be temporary. It's meant to be enjoyed, and then it goes away. It's destroyed, or it's packed away, or it's not something that gets hung on a wall forever. It's there for the moment, and then it's gone. I know one notable exception is is the Las Vegas Mantis. Oh, yeah. There's a number of artworks that have been displayed at Burning Man that have then gone on and toured some other places or been installed other places. Like, not everything gets burned, not everything is destroyed, but mm, the idea is, like, you experience the thing in the moment because you don't know if it's going to be there later or not. And thus, even more appropriate for not just young superheroes, but for X-Force in particular. Yes. So, have you ever encountered wayward superheroes at Burning Man? I may have. I definitely had a superhero-adjacent experience there a couple of years ago. It was 2019. I had been having a really hard time, and I was wandering around the desert, and I discovered that somebody had built a little Stan Lee shrine. And behind the shrine, there was a box that said, read me, and I opened up the box, and inside it, there were a bunch of beaten up, but really nice Marvel comics from like 1967, 1968 or so. And I thought, okay, I'm going to use one of these, and I'm going to have an exercise in divination. I'm going to have an exercise in bibliomancy to tell me how to get through this. And so I pulled out a comic at random. I flipped through its pages with my eyes closed. I pointed to a random point on one of them. I opened my eyes, and the panel I'd selected turned out to be a panel from a Jack Kirby Stanley issue of Fantastic Four, where somebody is saying, wait a minute, Doctor, something's wrong. There's an excessive amount of radiation emanating from that chemical mixture. And the scientist says, nonsense, I personally checked it just minutes ago. And I thought, okay, well, that's that's potentially kind of ominous, but maybe that's my omen. So I was out wandering around the playa that night. I was out in the deep playa. There were lots of loud sounds and bright lights. I needed a place to sit down. And I found this set of brightly painted cubes illuminated in black light. And they had like biohazard and radioactivity caution symbols. I was like, oh oh, maybe, like, okay, everything's radioactive here, so this has to do with that panel I saw earlier. And there were a few bugs that were flying around. There were some grasshoppers and praying mantises. And those are odd to see because nothing lives in the desert. And at one point I felt something, kind of a stinging sensation. I was like, okay, well, fine, whatever. I was distracted. But, you know, maybe, like, this radioactive area that I'm sitting in is, like... It's a benign interpretation of the panel that I saw earlier. And then the next day, the thing that had stung me turned out to be a gigantic spider bite that did not go away and that I ended up needing surgery for it because I was bitten by a radioactive spider. I, I, all I can say is, wow. <laughs> all of the responsibility, none of the power. That's what I got. Damn it, non-Marvel universe in which we live. 
So, Douglas, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I think we're going to dive back into X-Force 75 at this point. But, uh, listeners, now you know. Thanks, Douglas. Thank you so much. So, there you have it. Now you know about Burning Man, which means you kind of know about Exploding Colossal Man. And at Exploding Colossal Man, we start with an amazing Adam Polina crowd scene. The team gets out of their convertible to explore, and we see people covered in robes and cowboy and desert gear wearing wings and fig leaves and horns and flowers and leather masks and nun habits and everything. And the team's reaction to all of this varies. Right. Boom Boom is super into it. Uh, She is psyched, and so is Sunspot. This reminds him of Carnival back home. Warpath isn't so sure about this. Siren is disapproving and pessimistic of the whole thing. Mirage is getting a weird vibe. And this kind of made me think, this is a good group of characters we have right now. We only have five members of X-Force, which is by far the smallest the team has ever been. But there's really no redundancy. There's no overlap. They all have unique interactions with one another, which, as we've said many times over the course of this podcast, you need that for New Mutants. And by extension, you need that for X-Force. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And they don't get very far before they hear a familiar voice. Bobby? Tabitha? Danny? Who let you guys out of the school without a pass? Now we mentioned that a lot of the original New Mutants are on X-Force. Some of them are not, and this is one of them. This is Karma. But not Karma as we've known her. Right. She has a very different look now. Specifically, her hair is, is buzzed and dyed pale pink. But despite that, she is still recognizable as Mankow Swan. And we should say, by the way, if that name sounds a little unfamiliar, it's because that wasn't what Karma was called in the comics for a very long time. In fact, up until a couple of months ago, she was called Shankoi Man, or Mankoi Shan, depending on how you, uh, you order it. That name doesn't really exist in the Vietnamese language, though. Claremont just sort of made it up, hoping it would sound Vietnamese, I guess. And, you know, he gets it right more than he gets it wrong, so some credit. But it wasn't great. He gets it very, very wrong here. He gets it very wrong here. And so in Love Unlimited Infinity Comic number 31, which was written and drawn by a Vietnamese-American cartoonist named Trung Le Capeche Nguyen, it was revealed that Karma's actual first name was Swan, spelled X-U-A-N, with the original name having been a mispronunciation that everyone called her for so long that she didn't know really how to not awkwardly tell them they'd been messing it up for years. That's got strong Parks and Rec vibes. Yeah, I was totally thinking of Jerry. But uh, yeah, there we go. So Shan is in fact now Swan. And Swan is also now gay as hell. Like, we talk about subtext, and we talk about the kind of subtext that's only subtextual because the people in positions of significant power wouldn't necessarily recognize it. And if you gave this comic to a modern audience and asked them to describe the relationship dynamics in it, they would say that X-Force had met up with Swan and Swan's two girlfriends, her romantic girlfriends. Right. She's with two women named Simone and Jessica, who are making a documentary for Exploding Colossal Man, and who also look, especially for the late 90s, very, very gay. Now, you could theoretically argue, you could get some plausible deniability by saying, oh, you know, sometimes women call their female friends girlfriends, but- Yeah, she explicitly introduces them as her girlfriends. Yeah, it's pretty clear. This does make Swan, I believe, the first member of one of the Core X teams to be officially gay, even if it was never specifically mentioned in this issue. It's damn clear. Except it kind of was, because again, the question of how explicit it is- 
is entirely dependent on who's reading it. That's the whole thing with subtext. It's coded so that some audiences will immediately recognize it, and some might not. Yep. As for why Karma's here, so she actually met up with the New Mutants pretty recently in the New Mutants Truth or Death miniseries. She looked more like her old self at that point. But apparently now, now that she's found her siblings, finally, and Spiral turned them into these weird monster children, she was able to get them to a doctor who was going to treat them, and thus she's, on the advice of that doctor, going to find herself. I gotta say I'm really impressed with that doctor's ambition, because one of her siblings' torsos was full of wires that could grow legs and then could engulf people, and the other sibling had an egg on her back that would grow a new body and then the old body would shrivel up and die, so this doctor must be very skilled. Science is amazing. Science is amazing. That whole thing was in the Beast miniseries. We covered it in a prior episode. So, yeah, Swan Karma is back with the team for a little while. And she's surprised as she watches Boom Boom and Sunspot party and play and asks Mirage, hey, when did those two become a couple? She wonders also whether Danny and Sam ever had a thing, because they did flirt pretty consistently, and Sam very obviously had a crush on Danny for chunks of New Mutants. Sam, of course, being Cannonball. Danny mentions that Cannonball isn't her type, although later on they will be involved for a while. Karma mentions that Sam definitely isn't her type. I mean, the subtext is barely sub. And, in fact, after briefly deciding that this is a safe place to let go and sort of wow the crowds with their powers, Bobby and Tabitha, uh, Sunspot and Boom Boom, kiss. Which surprises the hell out of both of them. Yeah, they have never had that dynamic before. But, you know, reading the issues leading up to this... I can kind of see it. They're the two characters who come from dark pasts, who have all these doubts about themselves, who really cut loose as much as possible to compensate for that, and here they are in an environment where it's all about cutting loose. So, I don't know, I don't think this is out of character. I think it's completely in character for both of them. I wouldn't question this at all. Nor would I question their subsequent reactions to it, which are basically extreme guilt. Oh yeah, because Cannonball is Sunspot's best friend— And Boom Boom's boyfriend, so fair enough. But god, this rings true. These are like young 20-somethings making stupid decisions for reasons that at that moment seem completely unavoidable. Like, this is such good young adult soap opera. Yeah, and this really is X-Men back to its soap opera roots. And it wouldn't be X-Men without villains watching what's going on secretly. Although in this case, not through a screen. Uh, There are two costumed revelers. One of them's a demon, and one has a long top ponytail. Yeah, this is uh, Locus and Rainfire. Hey, wait a minute. Isn't Rainfire, like, the evil identity of Sunspot? What the hell? Yeah, I definitely thought Rainfire was Bobby. As uh, was the intention for a long time, but no, we've been seeing a shadowy figure that was implied to be Rainfire following X-Force for a number of issues, so yeah, this is a plotline that's coming up. In fact, this is a great big retcon where Rainfire was not Sunspot having turned evil for a while, or even an evil personality taking over Sunspot. Rainfire is a separate entity, and boy is this shit gonna get complicated. Oh, X-Men... Speaking of villains, a little ways away in the not-playa, some neo-pagans are building a circle of protection and invoking Gaia and stuff, when a woman in black leather lingerie and a cape shows up to school them on magic. And if you've been reading New Mutants back in the day, or even not that recent X-Force, you will know this woman. Or if you are a listener to Suri Rocast, where I gather that she is a great favorite, uh, this is Celine. 
Celine, the ancient external priestess psychic vampire. Yeah, I was always so bored by her as a character, but I gotta say, Cerebro has kinda turned me around. She's fun. She's fun, and we'll be seeing more of her soon. But speaking of other people that the main characters aren't paying attention to, there's also a shadowy man who turns down a fortune teller's offer to read his future, because he's seen the future. And he identifies himself as Nathan, and the only thing keeping him from being easily identifiable is that he's in enough shadow that his hair looks black. Yup, yup, so Cable's here too. Anyway, we should probably get back to X-Force, because that's the team and the title of the book. So, Siren and Warpath, they're the two that aren't really sure what's up with this place. They go to set up their tent. And she talks about how scandalized she is by everything. She's written as a very conservative character by John Francis Moore, which I don't think is necessarily out of character, but is also kind of new. She feels a lot like Wolfsbane in this issue. Yeah, I think she's really filling that Wolfsbane role. I completely agree. And I guess maybe somebody has to if they're at a place like Burning Man to just get across how out there it is. Does someone really have to be scandalized? Can someone just be like, hey, naked people? Do they have to be like, you, naked people? You know, that's a good point. That's a good point. But, uh, well, that's the role Siren has. Not that Warpath's paying a lot of attention, because he's distracted by the whole, you know, dead family fought their killer who was covered in blades and bones in hell just got resurrected thing, which, you know, fair enough. Yeah, that, that can be kind of distracting. Warpath feels like, hey, he's alive again, he learned what he wanted to learn all these years, he should be happy, but... I called myself Warpath because I was angry at the world for taking everyone I loved away from me. I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't want to define myself by rage. Then the question is, who do you want to be? I wish I knew. And I kind of wish he didn't go back to the Warpath name, but he eventually does. Not just like Laura Kinney kind of went back to X-23 for a long time after saying she never would again. Although I guess that was for copyright reasons. Warpath never had his own book. I mean, Warpath could also reasonably have been for trademark reasons. Hard to say. But when he goes off to clear his head, Siren is surprised by a voice she hasn't heard in a long time. Woo-wee! A 59 Eldorado! Now, while I'm sure it lacks the high-tech conveniences of the Packrat... I bet it's still one sweet ride. Hey, it's Cannonball! Remember from last episode, Cannonball left the X-Men very disappointed with all of them as soon as he got Boom Boom's letter inviting him to Exploding Colossal Man. So he showed up. You know, right after Sunspot and Boom Boom kissed. Yeah, he missed that, and they're in a different different part of the whatever the playa is in this anyway. I actually asked Douglas before we recorded what the odds were of, of someone being able to fly in and recognize a small group from above, and apparently they're pretty high. I guess it's pretty flat out there. Fair. And so Cannonball does actually find Boom Boom and Sunspot pretty quickly. Boom Boom's getting her navel pierced, and it's so painful. Like, Sam is delighted to see them, and just keeps talking, telling them all about how messed up things are at the X-Mansion, and just all these different stories, and they're just sitting there so awkward and sheepish, and just going, uh-huh, uh-huh, and looking guiltily at each other. There's this great panel Polina draws of the two of them looking down with their shoulders hunched, and like a bunch of red squiggles in the background in front of a red heartbeat line. I love how Polina just uses the background as a storytelling tool. Oh my god, Polina's art is so, so good here. Like, he, I, he's been he's been good from the start, and he's, he's been getting, you know, better and better. But what he does here, and the number of crowd scenes he does it in are just spectacular. Like, first of all, if, if, if you don't draw comics, if you're not a visual artist, um, you should understand that crowd scenes are, are anathema. They take for fucking ever to draw, and they're hard, and... 
again, what Polina accomplishes in this issue and that it's a really good, really detailed issue despite the number of crowd scenes is a hell of an accomplishment. Yeah. And uh, we've seen that before with Larry Stroman, we've seen that with Chris Bocello, and something we see with them that we also see with Polina is it's not just a bunch of sort of generic human forms. Sometimes you'll see that in comics. Like, all of these people, all of these random passersby, like, their appearances are unique, their body language is unique, their interactions with each other are unique. Like, you get the impression that all of these people have their own stories that have led them to this point. It's just that we're paying attention to the stories of X-Force, and I love that. It makes Exploding Colossal Man feel so just real and vast and lived in, and our characters are just sort of like surfing the waves of this bizarre, wonderful event. Yeah, it definitely gives the impression that we're only seeing like the outer fringe of something much, much larger and more complex. Well, let's move from there to a drum circle where Mirage finds Warpath. And they have a great conversation here, but something that's weird is that they mention that they don't know each other very well, which they really should. I mean... Warpath, when he was Thunderbird, the second Thunderbird, was the leader of the Hellions, the rival team of the New Mutants, and Mirage was one of the leaders of them. They were both Native American, but from different tribes. They had this really complicated dynamic. There was even a little romantic tension. We've just sort of forgotten that here. And I disagree. I disagree. I don't think they did ever know each other well. I mean, I think they had some charged encounters back in the day, but they were never close. I guess that's true. They weren't really friends. I mean, they, they had some intense conversations, but it just seems strange that that's not acknowledged. And that, that may just be the continuity nerd in me where I want every little bit of potentially relevant continuity to be brought up because that's kind of one of the things we do in this show. But yeah, you're right. Maybe that wouldn't really come up. Like, you see somebody at a bunch of parties or in a few fights in the case of these teams. Like, that doesn't necessarily mean you're buds or you're close. I mean, I feel like the fact that she feels like it's appropriate to approach him in this context is is enough callback to the degree of relationship they had. You know, that's a really good point, because while they're both members of X-Force now, Danny has only been here for a very short amount of time. Like, she and Warpath have barely overlapped on this team. Yeah. But they talk, and he mentions that what's traumatic isn't necessarily what he's been through. What's traumatic is with all the callbacks to his past recently, he's worried that he's losing it. He's worried that it's fading, and once it fades, all of his loved ones who have died will fade away too. Oh, damn. And she uses her powers, with his permission, like, they're very explicit about consent here, which I really like, to pull out a perfectly vivid vision of his memories of his family. And he can interact with them. His parents are there, his dead brother, John, he's Cat Coyote. It's lovely it's just so idyllic and like it's not one of those for the man who has everything visions where everybody thinks it's real like he knows it's not real the visions of his family seem to also know that their time is gone but it's just a chance to spend a few more moments together and to get a real chance to say goodbye and i'll admit i was i was tearing up reading this scene and that could be because we recently did x-force minus one which had those scenes with his family i recently reread giant size x-men thunderbird which has some of his surviving family members but this was just such a wonderful bit of of mercy and compassion that danny granted him you know this issue actually has another callback to x-force minus one as well oh yeah yeah, which is, is Boom Boom talking about the, her, her father insisting on playing country music in the car radio on long trips. Oh, that is a good point. She does mention that at one point, and yep, that comes up in X-Force number minus one. That's definitely an advantage of having the same writer do both of them. 
But no time for love, Dr. Proudstar, because a giant goddamn stone fist smashes up out of the dirt with no warning to sock Warpath in the mouth. And Mirage immediately recognizes this as the work of the one person she knows who can control Earth without it, you know, being on fire, and that is Selene. Yeah, now Selene's got some history. She was one of the earliest villains the New Mutants faced. They encountered each other a number of times through the Hellfire Club. Recently, when she was trying to kill all the externals, she fought the team. Nobody really likes Selene. Well, except, you know, Connor from Cerebro. She is a very mean lady. She's also very, very, very continuity complex. She's tangled up in Novoroma, which is where coherent continuity goes to die and then be um, retconned to have been alive all the time and then retconned to actually have been dead. Yeah, Novoroma is like Maximoff twins level of what the fuck. Oh my god, have the Maximoff twins ever been to Novoroma? It would create a, a singularity of retcons. Oh man, somebody needs to write that. Uh, somebody, if you're listening to this podcast, write that. Well, they, they can't now that they've heard it on the podcast because that's it, ain't their intellectual property issues with that. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I guess you're very familiar with that right now, because this will have been announced a couple weeks ago when this episode goes live, but Jay, you're writing another story for Marvel. I am. It is in, in um, I believe, Marvel Voices X-Men, which I, I assume, based on the previous title of titles and, and, and thematic links of Marvel Voices, is, is an issue that's entirely written by mutants. No, that would, that would make sense. Yeah, representation. But I am so excited about that. Like, you wrote that amazing Cyclops one-shot. You wrote that excellent Captain America miniseries on Marvel Unlimited. I love that Marvel just keeps bringing you back, and now you're doing another X thing. So cool. I am really excited to be doing this. I have actually had to turn down something a while ago because I, between work and and school and baby and life, I just didn't have time. And so this is this is also sort of an amazing... And and now I have time to make things up in my head that are not from, from scholarly journals, and it's great. So I know not much has been revealed. Is there anything at all you can say about it? I officially, I, I can't say anything about it. I will say I haven't actually, I turned in the script yet. So what I'm, what I would be saying would be entirely theoretical. I will say that I am, I'm getting to write characters I really, really, really love. And that I, I got to duck out of having to deal with um, Krakoa continuity, which I'm, I'm very proud of. <laughs> that definitely simplifies things. So I will, I will leave it at that. Well, all of that aside, back to 1997-8, Celine talks about why she's here, after, you know, encasing Mirage and Stone and knocking Warpath out so she can properly villain-splain without being interrupted. Well, specifically, she encases Mirage in, in what's described as liquid earth, which is mud, right? Like, that's what liquid earth is. Oh, it makes sense. I mean, the playa is super dusty and stuff, so if it ever rains out there, I'd imagine everyone is just covered in, like, this slick, thin, gross mud, so Selena's just a muddomancer. Ew, but also kind of awesome. Well, that sounds like Selene, all right. The point is, her villain speech includes the following. She needs the blood of an Asgardian to unlock a magic box forged by Atri the Dwarf, and said box contains a rune staff made from the wood of the world tree Yggdrasil itself. Now, Atri is is the guy who forged Mjolnir, right? Like in Stormbreaker? Mjolnir, Stormbreaker, and a whole lot of other awesome things. Yes. He is a dwarf, and he is rad, and he lives in the Valir, or possibly Svartalfheim, depending on which version of mythology you're looking at. But anyway, he also made this box, and it's very magic, and it needs Asgardian blood to open. But conveniently, even though nobody here is Asgardian, Mirage is kind of Asgardian, because she was a Valkyrie for a long time. So she'll do 
But I have I have a question, a larger question, which is we know what's in the box. What will opening it accomplish? Well, opening the box is the most important step one to being able to use what's in the box at the only possible time. Because tonight, here at Exploding Colossal Man in Midgard, asterisk, caption, Earth, the nine realms are converging. It's a grand conjunction, like in the Dark Crystal or any number of things. And that's the only time where that power of this realmic conjunction can be properly channeled with the proper device, which is the rune staff of Yggdrasil, which will make Selene, like, really, really, really powerful. So, um, basically, she just showed up at Burning Man to find somebody she knew was Asgardian or close to it so she could open a box so she could get a cool stick. That scans. Yeah. I mean, it'll happen again, this convergence, but, like, not for a thousand years. And, uh, Selene is many things. I don't know that patient is necessarily one of them. She is very old, um, so presumably she could wait for another thousand. Well, she could, but she stays young by sucking out various souls, or, well, drinking life energy, as the case may be. And that seems hard, and I think she would rather just, like, sit on the couch and watch early DVDs in 1998. What movies do you think she's into? So she would never admit it, but she just watches The Craft, like, every week. Yeah, yeah, okay, I would buy that. I was I was thinking that she'd turn out to be into, into something really counterintuitive, but... I mean, maybe. Maybe she loves rom-coms. I mean, I kind of like rom-coms. She just watches You've Got Mail over and over. <laughs> she remembers back when it was the shop on the corner. I don't know, she's a, yeah, she's a supervillain, though. Like, I feel like she would be into the, the whole, you know, Barnes & Noble takeover. Oh, that may be true. Yeah, there's no historical context here. She just likes watching product placement. Well, and, and she's part of the Hellfire Club, you know, so she, you, know, you know she's at least tangentially team capitalism. Yeah, yeah, she is. But you know what? We digress. The important part is magic stick that is only empowered every thousand years in a box openable by blood. Right. So, um, she managed, she pulls this off. But Mirage manages to one-inch punch her way out of the stone, or possibly mud, cocoon, and does an uncontrolled psychic zap in the direction of Warpath, which zaps him awake. He frees Danny, she fires a psychic arrow at Selene, and Warpath is able to grab the magic stick. Of course, Selene is an ancient wizard vampire lady, and Warpath is an awesome dude, but he's also, like, just a dude. And thus, when the grand convergence hits, when all nine realms, or I guess ten based on later continuity, line up, he can't really handle it. And the rune staff flies out of his hand into a big energy storm and manages to embed itself into... Do you know what it embedded itself into, listeners? That's right. The exploding colossal man itself. It's this giant, like, 80-foot-tall framework of metal and wood and neon, and now it's got a magic stick sticking out of its chest, and it freaking animates. I gotta tell you this. Every time you say Exploding Colossal Man, I expect it to be Amazing Colossal Man. Well, you know, the Exploding Colossal Man's heart is just a single cell. God, that's it's such a bad movie. I love it so much. But so I love bad. this so much! I love that all these young adults are having feelings at each other, and a wizard shows up, and then this big piece of installation art just like animates and turns into a big kaiju a big artistic creative drug-fueled kaiju it's really fantastic i gotta say this era of x-force gets so much shit and i think i get why because it's a tonal departure from what came before it that always pisses some people off but it's so fucking good it's it's kind of silly but it's like brilliant silly and it's interesting and it's 
wild and ridiculous and it's cinematic. Well, not cinematic is not the word I'm looking for because I was going to say cinematic in ways that only comics can pull off. And so <laughs> cinematic is absolutely not the word there. But um, it makes the most of its medium. It makes the most of its fictional context and setting in, in ways that I love. Completely agreed. And I think the reason that works in ways that, for instance, the Excalibur of this era doesn't always work, is that in X-Force here, everything flows completely from the personalities and more importantly, the interactions between the characters. Like, that level of melodrama is grounded in, yeah, that's what that character would do. That makes sense. And the melodrama is just as important as the giant animated installation art. Right, there's smoochin' and there's robot fighting and and blastin' and lesbians and it's 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 amazing you know i i think they should just put that as the blurb on the back of the next uh x-force collection that they publish the next x-force epic collection that includes this i would be so happy if that happened <laughs> right so uh that saves cannonball sunspot and boom boom from the awkwardness of the latter two having to talk to the former one because you know big monster fight and the mystery man from the future obviously cable is watching this as well, and he starts to dive into action and then says, you know, I'm gonna see if these kids can handle it on their own. I don't want to reveal that I've been following them, that I didn't trust them. I'm just gonna give them a shot to take care of this. And boy, do they. Yeah, karma mass-possesses the entire crowd to get them to safely walk away instead of panicking, which is damn impressive. I mean, before, possessing more than a couple people at a time was pretty hard for her. She's gotten so much more powerful as time has gone on. I mean, one of the things that we've seen consistently throughout the X-Books is that coming into your own as a person and shedding pretense allows you to use your powers to a greater extent, and that's definitely what we've seen with her here. Oh yeah, it's like the class change in Final Fantasy One. She went from traumatized teen to the upgraded class, which is empowered lesbian. Mirage manages to weather Celine's attacks for long enough to use her powers to hit Celine with her greatest fear, because of course, Mirage mostly fires psychic arrows these days, but she can also call up visions of people's greatest fears or desires. So what is Celine's greatest fear? Old ladies. Well, specifically herself as an old lady. She's worried that she will eventually be taken by the ravages of time, that eating young souls or, you know, bathing in their blood or injecting millennial blood or whatever won't be enough, and she will eventually age and become less powerful and die. And since, as any D&D player knows, you need to maintain concentration for a lot of spells, everything she's been trying to do fails, she loses control of the rune staff, and she teleports angrily away to presumably go watch Love Actually or something. I'm fantasized about Alan Rickman. I mean, can't blame anybody for that. Yeah, but I wouldn't fantasize about Alan Rickman in Love Actually, specifically. Oh, well, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Anyway, Warpath grabs the rune staff again for long enough to slow down the exploding colossal man while the rest of the team protects the crowd and each other. But it is Boom Boom that saves the day doing what she does best. That's right, she blows up the accurately named exploding colossal man with the largest time bomb she has ever made. Seriously, it's like three feet across. I'm very impressed with you, Tabitha. Well done. And there is a great full-page spread of the crowd freaking out as there's this giant quathoom in the sky and this immense column of flame with the flying members of X-Force's silhouettes being blown back. It's so rad. Like, sometimes full-page spreads feel like a waste. This one does not, as simple as it is. And in the aftermath, it's established in passing, you know, Danny's going to box the staff back up and give it to the Valkyries. They'll take it back to Asgard, so all good there. 
Which leaves only one thing, which is a proper reunion. As Karma says, Those other dimensional forces weren't the only things converging today. Look at all of us, together again. Sunspot replies, Just call us the ex-New Mutant Force. Boom Boom adds, <laughs> Let's not and see we did. So I was thinking, I love this reunion. I love that we have Karma back, we have Cannonball back. And I was thinking maybe it would be cool to have a bigger New Mutants than X-Force reunion. But I don't know, we just had one in Truth or Death, and Wolfsbane's in lockdown with Moira right now, and Amara's off finding her fake self, Richter's off at another plotline, Rusty's dead, everybody forgot about Skids, and Gossamer and Bird Boy shall never be spoken of again. So, you know, this is, this is fine. This fits. Anything else would feel forced. Dianu. And Cannonball is thrilled by this fact. He's thrilled to be fighting side by side with his best friend, who he trusts so much, and his girlfriend, who he knows is so loyal and true. Ooh. And they're just sitting there in the background, all queasy with guilt and fear. Oh, feelings. Oh, young adults. Oh, X-Force. And everyone heads off into the desert, leaving Cable to be the police dad and say to their, you know, departing backs, Good journey, X-Force. Before we look at X-Force number 76, we're going to jump ahead a bit over 20 years, I think about between 20 and 25 years, to New Mutants Volume 4, number 30. This is an issue titled 40 Years Young, and it's an anthology issue with a lot of flashback stories about moments in the New Mutants' lives that didn't take place on panel, but, but took place during or adjacent to stories. And there's a story specifically about how Karma ended up with her pink hair and how she ended up at Exploding Colossal Man. And this story is written by Vita Ayala, with art by Jason Liu, and letters by VC's Travis Lanham. And I want to say before we go in that, for the record, cutting and dyeing your friend's hair in a cheap hotel room right after they come out is peak late 90s queer culture. Which is exactly what we see Shatterstar doing for Karma. It's lovely. It is very sweet, and it's it's real in ways that just, ah, my heart. Like, if you know, you know. I read that, and I could smell the manic panic dye. (laughs) <laughs> right. That color, by the way, has to be cotton candy pink based on what was available at the time. You used a lot of Manic Panic back in the day. Well, I used that particular color of pink to dye my freshly shaved hair in a cheap hotel room at one point. Shit, you did. <laughs> and the dialogue here is lovely as well as Karma asks, Is this really me? Shatterstar replies, Maybe not forever, but for now, why not? The whole point is that we're tired of letting other people define who we are. Shatterstar as the queer older brother figure works so well here, and it makes sense because in this era, he is off having time with his boyfriend Richter. Like, they are basically a couple, as much as the comics code won't let anyone officially say so. So the fact that he's mentoring this newly out friend is just lovely. And they are specifically, the the two of them are headed to Echidna Fair, and... It's a very, it's a play on Lilith Fair, and the Echidna part had me completely stumped. I kept on thinking that it had to be some kind of reference to, to Echidna's the creature. And I ended up, I ended up texting Vida Ayala, who had told me that no, no, it's not. It's because, um, in, in Greek myth, um, Echidna is the mother of monsters. Oh, that makes way more sense. I kept thinking of Knuckles from the Sonic games and was very confused. Yeah, that was my second thought, which also turned out to be inaccurate. So, so yeah, that makes sense because that's, that's Lilith's role in, in Jewish mythology. Okay. So there is music and there is dancing and Shatterstar kisses several boys and Karma dances with a girl named Anya and Anya invites Karma to her tent later and she is all blushy and there are hearts and it's, oh, it's very cute. 
Yeah, Jason Liu draws Lovestruck Karma's dreamy smile so well. Like, this is such a charming story. But unfortunately, when she gets to Anya's tent, it's a mess. It looks like there's been a struggle, and people nearby say they saw Anya going into the woods with some guy looking upset. So Karma detaches Shatterstar from several fellows, and they head off to, to find Anya. As it turns out, the dude she went off with is Bradley, someone who, who she's known for a while. He is an asshole ex, or possibly asshole would-be ex, who wants to make Anya straight with sex. He refers to all the gay people at the fair as inverts, which is a super archaic word for gay people. Like, Bradley, are you from 1883? Maybe he's been reading The Well of Loneliness, and that's where he got everything he knows about lesbians, like my grandma did. Damn it, Bradley, and also your grandma in this case. So Shatterstar and Karma are prepared to go full angry superhero, but Anya punches Bradley out before they can, and they are both extremely impressed. Shatterstar carries off unconscious Bradley, and Karma and Anya kiss, and Anya mentions that she will later on be at Colossal Exploding Man, and we next see Karma showing up at Colossal Exploding Man with her two girlfriends. So Anya and Bradley, I don't believe they ever appear again. So, I don't know, do we think that Swan ever met up with Anya, or did she just, quote, settle for her two amazing girlfriends who are super awesome? I think that maybe they ran into each other at Amazing Colossal Man and, and had had brief happy makeouts. I'd like to think that. I'd like to think that too. I want good things for Karma. She has been through such over-the-top horrible shit. She deserves some happy makeouts. She can have as many girlfriends as she wants. Yes. Well done, Swan. We support you. Man, this story is very cute, and it's very sweet, and I love it. And it reminds me that I really, 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 really want to see more of Shatterstar interacting with queer culture, and especially, like, street queer culture. Agreed, yeah. We see some of that. We see a lot of that with Iceman, which is awesome. We see some of it with Richter, but more Shatterstar would be amazing. Yeah. Like, Shatterstar and queer punk culture is, is, is a match made in the happiest parts of my imagination. Oh, fuck Yeah. And that brings us to X-Force number 76, Bittersweet Reunions. This is written by John Francis Moore, with art by Mike S. Miller, colors by Marie Javins, letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, um, and thanks to Adam Polina for the story idea. Yeah, usually he's the artist, but apparently he came up with the idea for this one, and then didn't draw it. And we start with one of those sequences that you see a lot with regards to X-Force and the New Mutants, which is first a very Liefeld-style pinup of, of all of X-Force looking heroic in their costumes, and then on the page turn, the whole team in casual clothing, but matching shirts, out bowling. It's pretty great. I love that the team is in roughly the same arrangement as far as which members are where, even though it's not exactly the same team, because the first page is like the early 90s incarnation of X-Force. Right, and oh, and Sam is still with them. Cannonball is, is still with them. Um, There's a good deal of New Mutants nostalgia, because Danny and Sam are there. And... Not only that, but, uh, oh god, I love John Francis more for this. We get a moment of lampshading the way that Cannonball has been acting in X-Men. Cannonball explains to his friends as they all continue to catch up. My biggest problem is that I've fallen into old patterns. I keep acting like the same fresh-off-the-farm kid I was when I joined the New Mutants. And they're all catching up. Mirage mentions that it's good to be back with the team, that she was never asked to join X-Force, but... Dude, she deliberately chose to stay in Asgard before the New Mutants even met Cable, and, like, that long-distance call would have been super expensive, not that the X-Teams ever used the phone. I don't know, maybe she's being tongue-in-cheek. Like, it's really hard to say. John Francis Moore does write these characters as very self-aware, but he also misses little bits of continuity here and there, and I guess it doesn't really matter. The dialogue works. Fuck it, I'll take it. Again, I don't think he misses those bits. I think he just doesn't spell them out. That could be, yeah. I mean, certainly she's joking about how, you know, Cable never called, and Sam says, well, his loss. 
But it's good. These characters, they feel very present. They feel very present in their young adult selves. But you can also feel all of the history between them and the differing amounts of history between them. It's very clear that Sam and Danny have known each other for many, many, many years. But Danny actually barely knows some other team members, like especially Siren. Well, and we do get some great callbacks to their their original dynamic. They are old-school competitive in the ways that they were in New Mutants, and it's lovely. Until Tabitha blows up the lane with a time bomb bowling ball. Boom Boom talks about how she's grateful to the New Mutants herself, that she would be on the streets if it weren't for them. Which, I don't know, another potential continuity error. Like, she was taken in by X-Factor. She spent a lot of time with them, along with Richter, Rusty, and Skids. She only joined the New Mutants way later, when the X-Factor kids all joined up in New Mutants number 76. But, I don't know, maybe she just thinks of her time with the X-Factor kids as sort of being the other half of the group that would form the New Mutants eventually. Hard to say, she is kind of self-centered. Or of that as a more liminal era and her time as the New Mutants as, 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 you know, the group that she actually connected with and felt like a member of. Because she was just kind of adjunct to X-Factor. I mean, she ran away, like, twice during that era. You know, that's a really good point. I'm going to give John Francis more the benefit of the doubt. These are all in-character things for the characters to do and say. So even if they're not mentioning every single little mention of everything the way I personally would if I were a writer, that's fine. And in fact, maybe that's one of the reasons I'm not a writer. See, I kind of prefer some of that stuff between the lines. Legit. Although, speaking of, of things that Tabitha would have done in the old days, uh, she proceeds to blow up the lane with a time bomb bowling ball. And she, she argues that the humans around will just write this off as an equipment malfunction, which, um, I don't know about you. I haven't been bowling that much. Does bowling equipment tend to, like, explode violently? Well, not when I've been bowling, but I'm not a very good bowler, so I couldn't say. Also, her sunglasses appear and disappear between panels on, on sometimes the same page, which bothers me. She has a very short attention span. She's probably putting them on and taking them off a lot. But she's not holding them in the panels when she's not wearing them. Oh, uh, maybe she passed them to a nearby person whose job it is to hold her sunglasses. She's very pushy. Sam, meanwhile, is having a blast. He's flirting with the idea of rejoining X-Force while his girlfriend and best friend are somewhat guiltily flirting with each other. Yeah, they're not sure what to do, like how to tell Sam, even whether to tell Sam. And they've decided that that whether or not they tell Sam, this was a one-time thing, it was a fluke, they're not going to do it again. And so, of course, they immediately do it again. And Sam walks in on them making out and, and leaves, flies off, leaving Bobby and Tabitha feeling even guiltier. Oh, man, yeah, like, them feeling really guilty about it, being unable to resist anyway, then earnestly trying to fix things when they're found out. Again, perfect early 20s soap opera. But there are also grown-ups who have been in X-Force, so let's talk about one of them. Right, because this issue has a B-plot, and that B-plot follows Domino. Domino was a while ago kidnapped. Um, She had something implanted in her brain that basically suppressed her mutant luck powers. So she is relying on her regular strength and speed and fighting finesse these days. And she is relying on these to fight her way through an arcade emceed tournament on an oil tanker, trying to get hired as a bodyguard to someone named Etienne Rousseau, a reclusive European crime lord. So this premise, uh, infiltrating a criminal organization by joining a competition to pick a bodyguard for its leader, it's uh, very similar to the plot of Charlie Jane Anders' current New Mutants Lethal Legion miniseries, but in that the villain is Count Nefaria, which is a delightful series, by the way. I recommend you pick it up. It's it's really fun, but like bizarrely similar. I mean, it's it's definitely a, a premise and a, a structure that's that's been around for a fairly long time. It's It's shown up in other contexts and stories as well. 
And to be fair, both of us have joined underground fighting tournaments to uh, infiltrate criminal organizations by becoming a fake bodyguard for the ringleader. Who hasn't? So let's talk a little bit about Arcade and, and what his deal is here. So he has assembled and is emceeing this tournament. But it's kind of weird for him. Usually he runs Murder World, his sort of amusement park of assassination where he throws people into it and they are killed in entertaining elaborate ways. So this is a lot simpler than he usually goes for. Well, he's got an ulterior motive here, which we're going to find out about a little bit later. But first, let's get back to Domino. Um, Domino takes down eight previous opponents and discovers that her next is someone she knows very well, who was a student of hers. It is Shatterstar. Yeah, apparently Arcade has taken Richter hostage to ensure that neither Domino nor Shatterstar pulls their punches. He says he's going to kill Richter, or possibly set off the uh, many precarious jars of nitroglycerin around him. There's the Arcade we know and love, if they don't have, like, a real murder fight. The fight is very cool. It's decompressed and more cerebral than explosive in terms of the art. Domino, without powers, has to think really strategically to take on Shatterstar. And she finally manages to knock him out. She beheads the arcade bot. Inevitably, it's not actually arcade because he's got as many replicas as Doom does. And takes Rousseau into custody for the United Nations, which was her gig to begin with. I love that when Rousseau realizes, oh, she's not going to be my bodyguard. She's arresting me. He just says, c'est la vie. He's got a good attitude. A good attitude about crime. So, during all of this, Domino mentions to the reader the whole recent mystery about whether Shatterstar is really a time-traveling gladiator from a media-fueled alternate dimension, the Mojoverse, or whether he is just a fantasy dreamed up by a kid named Benjamin Russell. That was a plot point that Jeff Loeb did that never really made any sense. But the fact that we find that uh, Arcade's partner in all of this is goddamn Mojo would imply a big yes. Specifically, yes, that he's a gladiator from another universe, not that he's Benjamin Russell. Uh, yes, 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 definitely that. And this was all a setup. Um, Mojo hired Arcade to get Shatterstar into a fight so that Mojo could assess Shatterstar's current skills and determine, you know, whether he was still in shape to do what Mojo considers his contractual job. Shatterstar is still the copyrighted property of Mojo World Interdimensional Entertainment Incorporated, which means he belongs body and soul to me! Claremontism, body and soul, take a drink. And that ends the... I keep on... Again, I, I keep on going back to Amazing Colossal Man, the exploding Colossal Man arc of X-Force and you know, the subsequent follow-up. And goddamn, it's lovely. Like, I remember you and I texting back and forth as we were reading this just about how pleased we were with these issues. No, it's not the same as early 90s X-Force. It doesn't have to be. It is something weird and wonderful, and I love it. Man, I feel so strongly that John Francis Moore is sort of one of the forgotten cores of good X-Books. Like, he, everything he's done has landed so well. Completely, completely agreed. Like, I remember one of my early goals in the podcast was to turn more people onto New Mutants, and I feel like one of our goals in this era of the podcast is to turn more people onto this era of X-Force. Well, but also, I mean, our first introduction to more on this, this show was Wolverine Killing, which, spe again, speaking of forgotten classics. Oh, it was so delightful and weird and bizarre, and John Francis Moore, if you're out there, I hope you're doing well, and I hope you write more X-Comics. You should get in touch with us, because we'd really like to interview you about them. Oh, for real, yeah. Meanwhile, you've got questions. Faked Tales asks on Tumblr, Bastion's chin beard feels a little bit dated. If he was brought back by Siege Perilous to the 2020s, what would or should his facial hair be like? That's a 
It's a good question. I think a lot about facial hair. So, you know, I've been rewatching Neon Genesis Evangelion lately, so I just keep picturing Bastion with that slightly bushy chin strap that infamous jerkwad Gendo Akari wears. But no, this is 2023, so these days... I mean, Bastion's already drawn a lot of the time with, like, the hair on the sides of his head either buzzed or really short, so I say, fuck it, he should go full hipster with a long, full beard and, like, a curled waxed mustache and he can wear suspenders and drink hoppy craft beers to complete the look while murdering mutants and be profiled fairly sympathetically in the new york times as the hipster fascist oh well uh i hope he gets punched and a bunch of people do remixes of it with like wrecking ball as the soundtrack then i don't know jay what do you think bastion facial hair I was going to say that hipster fascist Bastion, wow, that's a tongue twister, made sense to me. But actually, Bastion's persona has always specifically been more working class. So I don't know. Um, I think I think I would probably give him like perpetual five o'clock shadow or designer stubble or like a short but very, very clean cut beard. Given that he is a machine made to look like a human being, it would literally be designer stubble. Wah, wah. Blue asks on Twitter. I just started rereading Wolverine from the first issue. I read them as a kid, but sporadically. Does Wolverine ever mentor a male character like he does Kitty or Jubilee? Not with exactly the same dynamic, but I would argue that there's a case to be made for Cannonball in about a dozen late 90s issues of Wolverine. Yeah, yeah, very different vibe, uh, like you said. Sam is very deferential toward Logan, which I guess makes sense, given that the X-Men and the New Mutants shared the mansion for a long time, and basically somebody from the kids' table is hanging out with somebody from the grown-ups' table. But what I like about this is it jives with how Cannonball's written in the X-Men, you know, as the awestruck newbie, kind of. It actually makes it make a little more sense— but it also makes it make sense when Cannonball gets so fed up with all the grown-ups in the issues that we covered last time. Like, he expected better, especially after idolizing Wolverine for so much page time in Wolverine's solo series. And that's the only male character we could really find that would qualify, but listeners, if you know of any others, uh, please let us know in the comments. I guess you could make a little bit of a case for Quentin Quire in Jason Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men. That doesn't seem like mentoring so much as babysitting and tolerating. You know, it's a thin line. Legit. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. And check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and entirely ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a minute to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. In two weeks, X-Factor's lineup goes further downhill. Just in time for the beginning of the end. Music